listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You are listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week, July 31st, August 4. Uh, this week, Tex Perkins came in for a bit of a chat about his new book, Tex. It was very exciting. Uh, I had a chat about my trip to the dentist. Yep, I went. And also we got to talk to director Greg McLean about the MIF opening night film Jungle. And we also got to talk to Simon Hinckley, Bugman from the Melbourne Museum, about Japanese giant hornets and their battles with honeybees. <laughs> And we also talked about gross food stuck in people's mouths. That's <laughs> exactly what it sounds like. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You are listening to Breakfasters with Sarah, Jeff and Geraldine. Pardon me. Um, How did you make that noise, Jeff? It's one of my many, many talents. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I went to the dentist on Friday. Now, I was talking about this before, about how it's been a while since I went to the dentist because I was very nervous about it, a lot of anxiety around it. So years ago I'd been to the dentist and it was not a pleasant experience. Um my teeth cleaned and it was just horrible like it's just rough and and i and i went well i'm not doing that again is it painful or yeah, just, yeah incredibly painful mm. just it didn't seem like there was a lot of care yeah. <laughs> i understand that just kind of just yeah. scraping them down yeah, yeah. i get that needs to be done now but those it, intense cleans can be Horrifying. It makes me not want to go back. Totally, I understand that. But were you you worried about the physical side of it or you worried about, I don't know, sometimes with those things, the bit that worries me is I always feel that they're just sitting judging my mouth. Oh, yeah. It's not very good. All you've got to think is that that whenever anyone's seen a bad mouth, I've seen a mouth ten times worse. They're a dentist, you know? They'd never be judging. Feel they I think Maybe they're they always do. judging. Really? <laughs> <laughs> All right. But that's but it's that classic thing of you let it go long enough and then it that anxiety just builds up. Yeah. Even totally. more. Um and I we'd spoken about this a few months ago on on this show and we had a very nice dentist called up and said, I'm not judgy, I'm very nice, I'm very friendly, come and see me. So I did. And uh, this was my second appointment with him, um, and it was it was great. So the first one, he just kind of looked at what needed to be done and went, yep, everything's fine. It's not fine, but, you know, <laughs> I haven't been to the dentist in a while. <laughs> teeth needed to be cleaned. I have to get a couple of fillings. But he did it. So he's just doing it bit by bit. So I went in on Friday, and I just got, um, like, the bottom right-hand side cleaned. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got a filling in there as well. But I, I, um, I opted to have the gas with it. I've never had the gas. I will change my life. Really? Yeah. What's it like? The best. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. It's so great. You also had I had numbing gel on it as well, so it was. Ah. Could you feel anything at all? Yeah, you could feel some, but not. Um, I just. Uh, if I thought about it too much, then I would just breathe deeper. Yeah, and right. And that made it okay. So, but you knew what was going on. Yeah, or? yeah, absolutely, it was fine. And the best thing is they have a TV on the roof. Mad. So, yeah. Um, and so we just put on. We put on. Um, 
He goes, sorry, the headphones aren't working. And I'm like, that's totally fine. Um, so I just put on like a nature documentary. That's a good thing to watch without yeah. having sound. Yeah. And they had the subtitles up so I could, you know, follow most of it. Did you have to, did you have, you know, sometimes wear sunglasses because of the bright yeah. light. Had the sunglasses on. You oh, know what gosh. else sunglasses are good for? What? Um, just being able to maintain eye contact with your with your dentist oh, to see yeah. if you. And I did. I looked deep into my dentist's eyes <laughs> and went. Forget you're get, right. What did you just? Get? <laughs> 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 they get pretty close, don't they? Yeah, and I was I was okay, and that's I was happy that I was wearing these sunglasses. Because I, man, I was high, so I was just looking into my dentist's eyes, going, Are "You shady, nah, you're all right." <laughs> I can see your soul. <laughs> yeah. oh. But it was so when they first, you know, the gas. That's it's it's not you know too much. It's just to you know make it okay. So, but I'm I'm watching the TV and there was some wolves you know, pouncing around a deer and oh. it looks like they were just playing, but obviously weren't. But Wolves oh and my- deer frolicking all the time. <laughs> just friends, forest friends. Imagine that. You're just in the forest and you find out they're actually friends. That'd be great, wouldn't yeah. it? But in my mind, like I like I just started giggling to myself watching these these wolves kind of just do that pouncing little uh, uh, thing um, and I started laughing but then tried to hold it in cuz oh, I no. thought oh if I'm if I'm laughing though he'll stop giving me the gas so oh. I've got to I've got to maintain Get some more. <laughs> I need more I've got to keep, keep this coming I've got to keep this up so I've just got to I just maintain it anyway. Is it laughing gas doesn't make you uh, yeah, I think in the, in the old, that's what it used to be called. Yeah, right. I'm pretty were, sure, were, yeah. Were you worried that, you know, because I, I don't imagine the wolves were playing with the deer. I imagine they were probably yeah. tearing it apart. <laughs> were you worried that the deer might see you laughing? There was part of me that, because in, in the docker they were just trying to, to wear it down. So they were kind of just... Dances with wolves. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I was I, I was like I was laughing at it, going, I know this is I shouldn't be laughing at this. So, just anyway, I didn't see what happened to the deer in the end. Three triple R. You're listening to Breakfasters on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine. And Sarah Tex Perkins has just published a new memoir about his life in music. It's called Tex. It's out through Pan Macmillan. He's joining us now in the studio. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you very much. It's uh, it's uh, good to be here. Jeff. <laughs> Jeff, Sarah, and Geraldine. We're just practicing names before. In the book, you write about how you were born in Darwin, mm. but it's Brisbane that made you what you are today. Maybe you could start by telling us what Brisbane was like when you were growing up, because it's a very strong feature all through the book. Uh, Brisbane was <clears throat> as close to, to South Africa as you could get. <laughs> to what you imagine, uh, you know, the, the heady days of apartheid. You know, it was our little version of that. It was, um, it was, um, you know, it was hot and it was intolerant <laughs> <laughs> of, of pretty much anything uh, that. Uh, Did you sort of describe growing up in kind of low level violence all, all exactly? Around? Well, exactly. It was. I mean, uh, the school schooling was. Well, it was back then. Yeah, I mean, your parents hit you. 
the school hits you. You had three older brothers, didn't you? <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, yeah, they hit you. <laughs> uh, so, so, yes, exactly. And then, yeah, yeah there's the, uh, the Lord of the Flies uh, aspect of going to school and, yeah, other kids, yeah. That fighting, and then, then when you and you travel on trains uh, alone at night, and uh, you you expect to get bashed. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was interesting. I don't know. Um, uh, it was almost mundane that, that sort of that sort of violence. You know I mean, do you think that sort of pushed people towards creativity? Maybe in, in, in your case, it sort of seems like you know you were kind of desperate to find something other than this kind of horrible world that surrounded you? No, no, that's another thing I uh, inadvertently kind of explored in the book. Uh, like uh, I had no... I had, I had three guitar lessons and, I, and they were so uninspiring that I... That I stopped, but I had this tendency towards performance of some kind. I was, I was as a kid, I was a practical joker, and uh, I would, you know, like put on a monkey mask and get on a bus, and you know, and or like or stuff my father's overalls with pillows, and then waddle around the front yard and you know, kind of freak out, you know, neighbours, well, people driving by, yeah, that just that sort of thing. That was my tendency. It wasn't like sort of, look at me and uh, how good I am playing <laughs> this instrument. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was more... I, 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 um, I theorise that it's kind of uh, akin to situationalism, uh, the art form of... Sort of it, which is kind of pranksterish, sort of uh, putting, putting, uh, putting art in unexpected places and... But I didn't know any of that when I was, when, no, when when I, when I was uh, just, yeah, mucking, mucking up. The first record you bought was Alice Cooper. Is that right? Did I? That's right. Yes, welcome, make sure I remember that correct. Yes. Welcome to my Thank nightmare. You. The, yeah, so, but that's quite funny, given he's such a performative artist. Was mm. that what you were drawn to with him or was it the music itself? I'm not sure. I think it's the, the music itself. Yeah. Um, the only other thing thing I was aware of him was uh, at the time was he was on the Muppet show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Which is awesome. He was one of the first sort of uh, rock star special guests that the Muppet show had. And believe it or not the Muppet show everybody watched the Muppet show back then. It was like it was you know it, it was all you know old people, young people, you know cool people. Everybody watched the Muppet. It's hard to believe. I know. It's not hard to believe. The Muppet Show's a great show. Thank you, Geraldine. Bang on with it, yeah. I don't know, and uh, Alice Cooper's on there, and uh, I um, I don't know. Yeah, you didn't get a lot of information about anybody the uh, back then. You pretty much restricted to whatever was on the front and back cover of an album cover. Yeah, right. And then, then you just filled in the blanks with your mind, which is... A lot more interesting and, and, and exciting in in one way. Um, sure, it's great to be able to look at a thousand pictures of everybody these days. Yes, <sighs> sure it is. <laughs> but uh, but uh, yes, uh, look, writing about these things uh, was very interesting because I was being encouraged to sort of you know I sort of wrote in essay form, like uh, yeah, right. you know like a subject. And I'd riff on it, and, yeah. uh, and then we sort of worked out the the order of everything later. But, um, but I was asked to, why don't you write about um, your early music that you influenced? What about the first album you ever bought? And uh, 
And I thought, I don't want to write. I don't want to be a record reviewer and, oh, this album was recorded <laughs> in 1975, <laughs> produced by Bob Resman and blah, 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 blah. It's exactly what record reviewers sound <laughs> like. <laughs> that's, every time I read that, that voice, I hear... <laughs> How long did the, uh, the, did but, the process but, take? Sorry. Sorry, I'll just finish this. This is a very interesting uh, little <laughs> anecdote that I'm going to get into. But the, the, I, did, I was uninterested in doing that, but then I realised how the story... The, the story really was how I came to have the money to buy an album, yes. you know, at 13. You know, and it was 20... You know, well, I'll, I'll briefly tell the story as I was in my room one day... My parents were away and I was living with my two brothers and he came into the room and said, here's $20, get the fuck out of the house today and don't come back until 4pm or I'll kill you. <laughs> and that, so I, that's what I write about yeah. rather than the, the record itself. I mean, I briefly sort of you know, acknowledge that I love the record but it's really about a... Uh, 12, 13-year-old kid uh, sort of uh, spending $20 in 1978 and uh, and you could buy an album, whole fucking album, and then, you know, cream bun and a, an iced coffee and, <laughs> and a mad magazine. <laughs> the book's full of anecdotes like that. I really liked the story you tell about uh, the horrified reactions that your first real band, Tex Deadly and the Dum Dums, uh, produced in other people who listened to them. You've got a great story about how Dave Faulkner from the Hoodoo so Gurus <laughs> reacted when he first heard them. Yes, yeah, I. Um, well, it's true. We, uh, yeah, we, we didn't really know it how how kind of awful we were. <laughs> but I mean, people, we were sort of, well, not intentionally awful, but you know, we were like seventeen year olds, so and uh, lacking uh, finesse, and so you know, it's, exactly this kid that you know that I was. Yeah, sure. This sort of irreverent prankster-ish sort of persona, you know, is on stage and um, seemingly taking the piss. Uh, I mean, seemingly sort of right into what he's doing, but also taking the piss at the same time, and that really confused and upset (laughs) some people. (laughs) And uh, yes, uh, Dave was uh, certainly one of the first (laughs) to express that. Do you want to tell us? No, 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 no. Do you want to read it actually out? um, But, uh, well, okay, following on from that, you you talk about being around a whole bunch of really talented people who are in lots of different bands doing really interesting things. And you say that there's one day you realised almost despite yourself that you'd become a professional musician, this become the thing that you'd you do. I've always, always been kind of fascinated by that. What do you see now as the difference between people like you who kept on going and, and made it something that became central to your life and the other people around you who sort of dropped out along the way? Were you just more driven or what? I had no options. <laughs> That's a very important distinction. Um, like other people, like the, like the great Dennis Tech, you know? Yeah. One of the great guitar player, rock guitar player. He's also a doctor, <laughs> and he always falls back. He's he's a doctor. Essentially, the guy's a doctor. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he plays guitar in a, in a rock band. So, if you've got something to fall back on, you fall back on it occasionally. And I got nothing. <laughs> I got, I'm making this shit up as I go along, and, and uh, basically, it's. It's, um, it's worked it's, out all right. Well, it's a series of opportunities and, and it's whether you go, oh, no, or 
yeah, <laughs> let's give it a shot. Yeah. Was so, there um, ever a moment where you thought, yeah, I have made it, or is it just a continuous journey? Well, well, well Geraldine, yes. <laughs> I, don't think there, I don't think there was. See, made it for me, you know, like made it, like when you get to the top of the, mm. when you get handed an Ari Award and blah, blah, all that sort of stuff. That's, I guess, um, uh, tangibly when you're supposed to have made it. Mm. But um, well, after that, basically most bands in Australia and even around the world, I guess, especially in Australia, you get ten years of that that industry kind of success yeah. where everyone's going, yeah, 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 and we're all right behind you and the machine's chugging along and and then uh, it, it finishes and, and if you're lucky enough... After that point, you just go to work. Yeah. It's, you know, like, you know, like you've got your audience, you know, like you don't need all the, you know, like constant announcements about how great you are. Basically, hopefully, you've established an audience that are going to stay with you. And that's, that's kind of what I've done, really. Um, I, even though I confuse my audience all the time by doing all these different things, actually, it shits them to tears sometimes. <laughs> it's like, there's, there's often there's an air of, what has he done now? <laughs> oh god, it's funk this time, is it? <laughs> oh great. Do you think maybe you made it when you've got a quote on the front of your book from Iggy Pop that said, "says Tex is the realest dude out there. He is a born stone stud symbol." I can't say that with a list. Yes. I wish I was more like Tex. Do you think that's it? The definition maybe of making it. I'm a little uncomfortable with that. <laughs> so is that a quote from Iggy from the past or is that something from, recent? Because you have some great anecdotes about hanging out with Iggy Pop in this book. Yeah, uh, well, the, the publishers contacted him. Ah. They hunted him down for a, for a quote. And um, actually, uh, typical, they gave him some options like, like, would you like to say this? Would you like to say that? Do you want to say, he's a, sto- say he's a stone well, stud symbol? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they had these standardised sort of... You know that he could just sort of put his name underneath, sure. and, and he would. <laughs> now I'll I'll write one myself. Thank <laughs> you. Very much. But, uh, I think what he means by "I wish I was more like Tex." I the only thing I can think of is maybe twenty years younger. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that's what he means. A little, <laughs> a little. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sure Iggy would love to buy twenty years off me. I feel like we could talk about this book for a long time but I reckon there's one thing that Triple R um, listeners are really going to like about it one thing you do throughout the book is you go through all of your various recordings and you look back on them and you talk about the songs that you like and the songs that you don't like and you give your yeah. opinions of them when you were doing that were there any big surprises for you were there any particular albums that you listened to again and thought I wasn't expecting to like it but I really do or I thought I would like it and I really don't well actually Jeff to tell you the truth <clears throat> I own. I didn't really systematically go and listen to every record again. I, with a lot of them, I, I just wrote my long-held opinion yeah, about right. them. And, uh, and you know what? I, I could have been. I could be wrong because I, perspective changes everything for me constantly. Like it's something, something that I've completely written off. Like ten years later, I'll go. Wow, that's pretty good. What, yeah. What, what, yeah uh, so it's distance and perspective changes everything. So I mean, I just yeah. I to tell the truth, yeah, I wrote long held opinions about those <laughs> things rather than fresh 
you know, of, um, hmm, yes, that's how I feel about it these days. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I think, I think it's pretty <laughs> – I think it is what I think, you know, but, but yeah. Like I said, I reckon yeah. Triple R listeners will really like that. I reckon they're going to like the book as well. It's called Tex. It's out now through Pan Macmillan. We've been talking to its author, Tex Perkins. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Jeff, Geraldine, and, and Sarah. <laughs> Three. Triple. Ah. You're listening to Breakfasts with Sarah, Jeff, and Geraldine. Uh, Geraldine, you like mm-hmm. to go to the movies and eat popcorn. Would you? It's one of my favourite things to do. <laughs> right. Yes, it is fun. And you always want, I, mean, I know that whenever we get to go to a premiere or something, you're always like, oh, I hope they have yep, some that's popcorn. why I like to go. Free popcorn, grab a box, in we go. Yum, yum, yum. I love a bit of popcorn, okay. I'm obsessed with, I think this brand is Cobbs as well. They have yes. This, you can go and get just the salt or the salt and the sweet or the cheesy ones. I eat them a lot. They're a fun snack. They make me feel like I'm not doing something bad. What are the cheesy ones like? Well, I'm not a big fan of cheese, so but that mm. is interesting. You should ask that because a friend of mine is addicted to the cheese ones, oh. loves them because they remind her of this um, cheesy kind of popcorn we used to get in primary school from the tuck shop, very yes. similar to something that was around in the 90s and she eats it a lot for a snack and recently she was eating a lot of popcorn and um, about a day or two after eating the popcorn realised that she had this weird feeling in her mouth and uh, oh. she could taste, she got to kind of taste this cheesy popcorn taste and kind of smell this cheesy. And she was just wondering where this was coming from. She thought there was something wrong with her gum, maybe her teeth. I have a bad feeling about this story. Yeah. And then she started feeling around with her tongue and um, found a little lump like under her gum, between her teeth and her gum. Yeah. And was a little bit worried about this and was in a bit of pain. So it went to the dentist. <gasps> and what had happened was a corn kernel, that when she'd been eating the popcorn really fast, had wedged itself under her gum, between her teeth and her gum, <gasps> and got stuck under her gum. And was growing? And had been, or just been sitting in there for <laughs> a week. <laughs> it was gone. <laughs> oh, that's gross. How horrible is that? And it's just been sitting there for a whole week. A week? Yeah, and that's why she could taste it. She didn't know what it was at first. And they Did had she to... feel it for a week? She, well, she said that she kind of at first couldn't feel it. And then I think it was up behind her top teeth. And you don't like always right run... right up the back. Yeah, so you don't always run your... Did she get Tongue a whiz- up she had a whizzies out? She's had a whizzies out. She's also had a lot of dental work because she was weirdly enough born without most of her back. She didn't get adult teeth, her back teeth. Uh-huh. So her, well, maybe her, that's her ba- mate, she went to the dentist. The dentist had to inject her and stuff and then get it out. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. And he thought he, he said to her, oh, maybe like you've got a gum disease because how else does a whole kernel of corn get wedged up under your gum? But it turns out it was just a freak accident. Like <laughs> she was just eating popcorn so... That's dubiously, insane. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know how she was eating it, but just in, and that one got weeds done yeah, there. Yeah, but I get you know, the, you know when you get the shell of the, the shell caught in your teeth. Oh this my is god, it happens all the time. Imagine an entire co- kernel wedging its way. Geraldine suggested that it was growing. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that. Though. Imagine that pop. Imagine uh, I told friends this the other day, and they suggested that. Imagine if she stood in front of a microwave and opened her mouth and it had popped. Yeah, I know. But how horrifying is that? So since then. I, I was eating popcorn the other day and I'm, I'm, I can't eat it fast anymore. I'm so concerned that I'm going to get a, a bit of stuff wedged off in my gums. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so horrified. I, I used to enjoy popcorn, but never now you're not going to. But I've never had that really happen with the food. Oh, I've had incidences where, like as a kid, I swallowed a plum pip and I remember being so horrified 
buy it and think it was going to grow. grow. Yeah. yeah, and not being able to eat plums for a whole year. But this is the first time in a long time that I've been so, so put off of food. Like, and I love popcorn. Yeah. So you've been put off. Is, has she been put off? No, mate. She was smashing it the other day. We were eating it. <laughs> she goes, this is how she told me. We were in the car. We are both eating, like, handfuls of the popcorn that she bought. And she goes, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. Did I tell you about how the cob got caught under my gum? <laughs> Imagine if you had to go back a second time. I know. <laughs> it's, like this. it's happened again. <laughs> I'm with you, mate, though. If something's good, you just you, you <laughs> keep going with it. Yeah. Do you know when I was in um, oh, I was in kinder, like preschool even, we were down at the park one day and I um, – this is one of my earliest memories. I fell off a slide, fell, fell off over the side, you know, cut my mouth open, mouth bleeding and <laughs> the kindergarten teacher at the time was like, oh, here, ha- have a lolly and all that. They had banana lollies and I'd never had a banana lolly before. Oh. I'm like, what is this? I ate that <laughs> and for but because my mouth was so full of blood, I just had this, you know, I was had this blood-stained banana lolly. Oh. But now it's one of my favourite lollies. Is my, it? Yeah, Reverse effect. Yeah, it's my favourite in the, you know, you take the take the taste of blood out of it and yum, yum, yum. Banana, banana's my favourite from the mm. picky mix as well. Yeah. I had a long time where I couldn't eat boiled eggs. Oh, I feel like eggs are so easy to get put off. Well, yeah. See, I, I, I don't in, know if I want to hear this story. <laughs> no, keep going. Possibly not. I was in the Philippines and um, this is an amusing trick that they play on Westerners who are in the Philippines because it's one of their local delicacies called balut, which is um, it's the bur- it's a, it's a boiled egg, but they d- they let the embryo develop. Uh, oh, I'm sorry to everyone. I'm sorry to everyone who's eating breakfast right now. Yeah, it's actually people say it's very nice if you're from the Philippines. You have it with with um, beer, like it's a drinking snack. Okay. I wasn't aware that's actually what it was. I just thought it was a boiled egg, but. Uh, Suffice to say, it's a lot crunchier than your normal. Oh my lord! Oh my lord! Oh, I feel sick. <laughs> I actually don't know if I can. Do you I think you've ruined those, eggs for me forever. Did you ever have those? Um, you know those novelty uh, coffee cups where they'd have like a fake fly down the bottom. Did you ever drink out uh, of one no. of those? No. No, yeah, it's just yeah, like that. I remember that. All those joke gum ice cubes that would have like a half fly in them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember drinking one of those once, having a little fly, and and not knowing about it, and just kind of drinking and seeing this black thing <gasps> just come up down the bottom, and like looking at my mate that had made me this. I think it was a Milo, and I'm just going. I don't know if I was just saying anything because it tastes really nice. <laughs> <laughs> Can I drink around? Drinking it fine. anyway. You know, I, remember, fine. I remember as a kid being told that. that I, I remember when I was really young, having chewing gum for the first time and swallowing it, and I remember one of, I think probably my brother would sort of think he would do, I'm sorry Rob if you're listening, but t- telling me that um, that it was poisonous and now I had it in my stomach. Well, is that like what it takes seven years to digest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah you know. I've told you about this before when the first time I ever had bubble gum was when I had a, a bubble-o bill and... Um, and, oh. you know, I remember this and I swallowed yeah. it and my just as I swallowed it, my sister turned to me and she goes, make sure you don't swallow that bubble gum, otherwise it'll get stuck in your throat and then you'll die. <laughs> and then... <laughs> And then I, I was because I'm extreme already, from yeah. like getting your stomach I, for seven years so you'll die. Yeah, but then I I got because I'd already swallowed it. I didn't didn't want to create a fuss, so I just I didn't say anything. <laughs> I 
I'll just casually die. Cause any trouble. I'll just go to the corner and die. corner and die. That's exactly what I did. I went and sat in the corner and waiting to die quietly. Bin like it was full of the only thing in the bin was everybody else's chewed up bits of bubble gum, and I just sat there staring at it, just waiting to silently pass away. Three, triple, ah. That's right. It's time for feature creatures here on Breakfaster, and this Breakfasters, and this week we're joined by Simon Hinckley from Museums Victoria. How are you going, Simon? Good, thank you. Uh, this week we have. An awesome topic, an awesome topic title, Japanese Giant Hornets and Their Battles with Honeybees. Um, maybe we could break that down. What is a Japanese Giant Hornet? It is uh, an insect, and I have to admit, um, shameless plug um, for the museum here. Uh, it's an insect that is on display in the Bug Lab exhibition, which uh, is a collaboration between the Te Papa Museum in New Zealand and the Weta Workshop. And people may know Weta Workshop are the people behind the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit costumes and that sort of thing. So it's a great big model in the exhibition of this uh, giant Asian hornet fighting with Japanese honeybees. So basically, the Asian hornet is one of the biggest wasps in the world. The queens are probably in excess of about five centimetres and they're packing a sting of about six millimetres in length, which may not sound that big, but if it's pumped into you with a lot of venom, um, mm. one of the researchers in, I think, China who was stung said it was like having a hot nail driven into his leg. Oh. So you can imagine if you were to get multiple stings from those, it's um, quite a life-changing experience. So, um, yeah, these, these guys, uh, they do cause a number of fatalities uh, in Japan each year and there was... Uh, in China, I think in 2013, there were some dozens of deaths in one of the provinces. For some reason, there was just a lot of interaction between people and, and hornets that year. So um, they're a fa- fairly formidable uh, predator out there. And what they do is they will attack a whole range of prey, and including other social insects. So they will find beehives and they have uh, big mandibles. So what they'll do is uh, a Jap- uh, an Asian hornet can kill about 40 honeybees a minute. So they just oh, go in and it's a massacre. Whoa. So they're just... there's bits of bee going everywhere. What they're are just they killing in. them with? Their mandibles, their jaws. So they just go oh. in and they just they can either sting them or they can just literally sort of chop them apart. What so do they do that for? Yeah. Well, there is method to the madness. <laughs> um, so what, the reason why they're doing that is... <laughs> The reason why they're doing that is um, what they're doing is they want to get the honey in the uh, that the bees have made and also their larvae and possibly parts of the, the workers that they've killed. So they can't actually process solid protein. So they take that back to their hive, they feed that to their larvae and, the, they, sorry, they chew it up into a paste and they feed that to the larvae. So that keeps their larvae alive and in return the larvae produce like an amino acid rich liquid that the adults can then feed on. So they've got this nice sort of interaction, food interaction wow. going based on slaughtering other insects. Um, and there were some companies in the US and I think well, Asia and Europe as well that have, have tried to create a simulated amino acid that you can buy that's going to make you faster, stronger, better. It's called like hornet juice or wasp juice or something, sting juice or something. Is so, it, does it work? I think the jury's out, but um, they, they are eaten in Japan. So there, there is sort of like a cultural um, oh. thing with these things. And I guess being such a big, powerful thing, there is that connotation. And if it gets a placebo effect for you, fantastic. Yeah. But um, 
it would have to work fairly well because the the Japanese, the giant hornets can fly at about 40 kilometres an hour. Wow. And the average unfit person, so not Usain Bolt, the average unfit person runs at about 18, 20 kilometres an hour. So if you hit a hive, um, you're going to be caught up with fairly quickly. And um, I think they were doing some, they were looking at uh, someone who died. I think they had 59 stings or something. So you can imagine like 59 hot nails being driven in. And you either get, if you're allergic to bee ant wasp stings, your odds aren't good, but even if you're not, that number of stings, you can get like organ failure and stuff from these things. So they're, they're fairly powerful things. So how do you escape? You either <laughs> you run, you become fit. You, you don't be an unfit person if you're going to hit one of these things. So you run really, really fast um, or you don't hit the colony. So they won't come looking for you, but obviously if you inadvertently knock the nest or something like that, they see you as a threat, then then you're in a bit of trouble. And they don't die when they sting. You know how bees die when they sting. Exactly. So they don't, yeah. So oh, the, right. the, um, the Bees have a barbed sting, so when they sting you, the, the sting sticks in you, and then when the bee retracts the abdomen, it pulls all the guts out. So yeah. it's a oh. one-off hit, um, which is why they're loath to sting you. But the, the wasps have a, a smooth sting, so it goes in and out and in and out repeatedly for as many times as you stand there, which is not long. Yeah, You, you call oh. them social insects? Is, is yeah. that, so what, what's the difference between a hornet and a bee? So the um, the hornet is a type of wasp, so they're uh, like the European wasp, um, things like that. Uh, and then the the European honeybee, uh, sorry, the Japanese honeybee is a is similar to the European honeybee. So they're all types of social insects, like the termites, the ants, that sort of thing, that have a, a queen and a, a social structure with workers and soldiers and that sort of thing. So where the the honeybees come in is um, they've developed this amazing strategy to defend themselves, where the what it only works if the first one or two hornets that reach the nest can be taken out once they bring reinforcements it's it's slaughter time so what the what the bees do is they pretty much go they all sort of go inside and they allow the first scout hornet to come inside they're like oh what's what's going on but go inside and check they're waiting inside and a signal's given and they all go stacks on the mill so hundreds of bees jump on this hornet and they form this rolling ball of, of bees with one hornet inside and they vibrate their wing muscles. So the bees can do this to heat the colony if they need to, but they can also use it in this instance to raise the temperature inside this ball so it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. The hornet is killed at about 47 degrees. The bees drop out a little bit above that. So they just vibrate and vibrate till they actually cook the hornet to death. Is that a science fiction movie? It's excellent. Yeah, it's it's yeah. great. And do the bees survive it? Or? A couple of them will die, like probably those closest, because also inside the ball the carbon dioxide level rises as well because there's no oxygen getting in. It's getting really, really hot. So some will die, but if you've got like two or 300 bees all cooking this wasp and a couple die and you've saved the colony, well, that's in, in a social system, it's all about the queen and, and ensuring the colony survives. So they're considered... Take no, one for the team. Exactly, exactly. Jeez. Yeah. So if, if once they boil a hornet or whatever they do, burn the hornet to death, does that send out a signal to tell the other hornets not to bother coming or do they just know? That's a great question. Um, so what the hornets basically do is they're one of the few species that that try to mark the hive. So what they do is they, when they get there, they put a, um, a scent on the, the hive of the bee and that either attracts other um, hornets that are around or when she goes back to the colony, she can come back with reinforcements. So... Um, uh, what they think is that, yes, if they can kill this first scout, then it works. But if there's others get the detect the scent, then it won't happen. But there's also some theory that um, there's something at play with some species where rather than getting to this fight where lots of things die on each side, it's almost like a display thing. Like some of the there's there's this theory that some of the insects can sort of say, hey, we've seen you and we're going to do this to you. And there's some sort of interaction between the predator and the prey. Wow. And they both go, oh, that's right. Maybe you can do it. that. 
oh, let's all back off. So there's some question about whether whether that's at play here as kind well. Kind of like flexing the muscles. Pretty much, exactly. Yeah. yeah, wow. Yeah. And this is instinctual. I mean, how... how, how can you can you talk about intelligence in that? Because it sounds it sounds like a plan, doesn't it? It sounds like they all decide this is our best. But you don't imagine bees have much in the way of brain. Well, they they have um, a really uh, effective way of communication. So you might have heard of the waggle dance, which is where um, when bees are foraging, if no, they find... I have <laughs> not heard of the waggle dance. <laughs> sorry, yeah, okay. <laughs> so sorry, the waggle dance is where um, when bees are foraging, uh, if they find a really good food source, they'll come back to the hive and they'll do this. Sort of like they'll do this dance where they turn around and they waggle the abdomen and it's all about conveying to the other workers, hey, I found this great resource, it's over there. So they have this really, that's how social insects work. They need to be able to communicate to each other, that's a danger, that's food, Let's they've found a great spot for a new hive over there, let's go sort of thing. So despite the fact that we don't ascribe them a level of intelligence, there's an incredibly complex interaction going on in the colony that they're able to convey to each other. So yeah, they um, they can convey and that, that thing of that um, when that hornet comes into the nest, they've already conveyed to each other, there's a threat, let's all get ready, some some signal is given, everyone on, everyone knows to vibrate their wing muscles. So there's, there's an innate knowledge about what to do when these situations present. Do we have hornets in Australia? We don't have that one. Um, and we don't really have, I mean, we, we have thousands of species of wasp and bee, but uh, I don't think we, that's actually, I should know that, I don't think we actually really have hornets as such in Australia. Okay. Yeah. And they're not something that could come here, like get carried here or fly here for any reason? Is that's, that a threat? Or? That's always a risk. Um, I mean, basically, so they, these hornets are across Asia. Um, obviously, northern parts of Australia, the climate would probably be um, okay for them. Uh, and that's one of the things that customs do. They're continually trying to prevent things coming in. So we don't have them here, but there's no reason to suspect that they couldn't survive here if if a, if a, a inseminated queen was to somehow come in, um, mm. say she was under the bark of a tree or she was in a container or something. You know, that's always a possibility. Mm. Yeah. And, and the war between the hornets and the bees, <laughs> mm. who's who's coming out on top? I would say, given that both species are common, they've reached that equilibrium where it's working for both. The Japanese actually tried to bring in European honeybees because European honeybees produce more honey than Japanese honeybees. And the European honeybees arrived and went, oh, what's this hornet thing? And they were just, they were slaughtered. So they were useless because they didn't have that, they hadn't evolved that sort of interaction with them. So they were just, they went, we don't know what to do. We're getting chopped apart. Whereas the Japanese ones have got this stacks on the mill, cook it. The, the mm. Japanese hornets must have been licking their lips when they <laughs> <laughs> the British the British have arrived. Yeah, it's dinner time. Um, hey, someone just asked a question, which I'm just going to ask while you're here. Yeah. Someone said, "What are the orange wasps that hang around outdoor pools? Is there a, specifically an orange wasp?" There is. Um, if it's a large one, it, there's a right across most of Australia, there's a large black and orange wasp that is a spider hunting wasp that we, oh. we might have talked about, I can't remember, that actually looks for spiders, paralyses them, lays an egg on them and that sort of thing. They're commonly seen because they're a big, obvious orange wasp, so it may be that people are seeing those. Mm. Obviously, honeybees will be around pools because there's the water, so it's a bit of a summer thing to stand on a bee when you're a kid and be fairly unimpressed at that. Yeah. But I would imagine they'd know what a bee is, so it's quite possibly one of these big spider hunting wasps. Oh, thank you yeah. for that. All right, before we leave... Let you go. What's the details for the bug? 
So the Bug Lab exhibition is on until into October um, and you can come to the museum and entry to the Bug Lab exhibition gets you entry to the Melbourne Museum. So you can do that or you can go just to the Melbourne Museum and see our Bugs Alive exhibition, which is separate. But yeah, look, the Bug Lab exhibition has got some really cool models uh, and some, some nice interaction. Uh, sorry, some nice footage and some pin specimens. And there's a really lovely orchid mantis that someone yesterday was continually telling me it's the awkward mantis. I'm like, no, no, it is the awkward <laughs> mantis, which I thought was an image of something falling off the twig oh, all the time. Great. But yeah. Oh, we've been talking to Simon Hinckley from Museums Victoria. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. You're in You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff, Geraldine and Sarah. This year, the Melbourne International Film Festival has chosen for its opening tonight at the Regent Theatre, the new movie Jungle, starring Daniel Radcliffe. Its director is Greg McLean. He's joining us in the studio now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks, guys. Good to be here. It's great to have you. Now, Jungle's a film about survival in the Amazon based on a memoir by Yoshi Ginsberg. Where did you first come across the Yoshi Ginsberg story? Um, I, a couple of years ago, a producer that I know who was involved in getting the first Wolf Creek distributed, um, rang me up and said, got a great project. Think you'll love it. Have a read. Um, I'd actually heard about it because the film had, the, the, the book had been around for a number of years and it had a couple of attempts to get made. So I was sort of aware of, aware of it, um, but never read it. And then I read it quickly and then just couldn't believe it was a true story. And then I tracked down the novel and read the novel and once I read that I thought this is just amazing because when I read the script I thought this can't be true what happened to this guy and then the book which is the you know autobiographical account of Yossi's you know adventure in the Amazon jungle confirmed everything and then I just said how do I get onto this movie what do I got to do to get hired and then um, I met with everybody and then you know we jumped into it and then two years later here we are. As you mentioned people will know you from the Wolf Creek films and the Stan series of the same name. This is not horror film it's a film about survival it's also a film about friendship i guess were you keen to do something that was kind of that wasn't you know wolf creek in the jungle it was a film about i guess basically the relationship between a group of young men yes um i mean yes definitely i I, I mean i was looking to do something outside of the horror genre um and you know i mean i before wolf creek i wasn't actually like i went to art school so i was going to be an artist before I became, you know, a film. You were a, f- a painter. <laughs> I was a painter. I went to RMIT. I did painting at RMIT. And then I did theatre for four or five years after that. So I actually come from the art theatre opera world and then happened to get, you know, I wrote a bunch of scripts and one of them was a horror film that got made. But, you know, it, it could easily have been a comedy that it got made. So it's odd that I kind of went on this path to, you know, into the horror genre. But I certainly have always been looking for something else that's outside of that. And in... This story to me was really about, um, you know, what was fascinating was the relationships between these guys, what happened to them, you know, but, you know, as a friendship group, watching them dissolve as they went on this, this journey, but more about Yossi's personal kind of development through the story and what he discovered by being isolated and alone and how he kind of transcended his situation by using his imagination. And to me, that was just a really potent idea to, to play with and quite moving and interesting. How did Daniel Radcliffe come to be involved in the project? Um, it was one of those things where, you know, we'd been kicking around ideas for the for the casting for a year and um, we'd had a couple of wacky ideas and, you know, you go down certain paths with, with people and it doesn't go anywhere. And then I think one day someone just said, what about Daniel Radcliffe? And we went, yeah, cool. Yeah, right. Just like that. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, you know, from us going, yeah, cool to 
you know, getting a phone call set up, that was that was another six months because, you know, trying to wow. get the agents and scripts and and then, you know, we eventually got a call saying he's ready, he really loves it, he'd love to talk to you. So I got on a phone call with him. And we just, you know, chatted and just talked about the character and the story and, and just, you know, we got really excited about what it was and what it could be. And then and then he signed on and then it came together pretty quickly once he signed on because, you know, he's, he's you know, a globally known actor and people love him and he's great. So it sort of helped the movie get going. Is it common to go, here's the name and that actually work out? Um, I've... I've been pretty lucky with that, but it can be really hard. Like, and, and with every, as I think back, you know, so many movies I've done, you go on long journeys to, with people and then yeah. nothing happens and, you know, it just doesn't work out. But it's just, it, the weird part about it is you always kind of end up with the right people. Some magical way, it, the right people end up being in it. Yeah. Even though your heart's broken along the way, and you think, oh my God, the film can't be made without this person. And then three weeks later, it's like, oh my God, it could never be made unless we had this person mm-hmm. who you end up with. So it's kind of weird how that works out. Without wanting to give too much to say, suffice to say that um, Daniel Radcliffe's character goes through something of an ordeal and you can see that in his body by the end of the film. It's quite an extraordinary transformation. What kind of regime did he put himself through in order to achieve that effect? Because it looks extraordinary. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, in the story, um, you know, Yossi, in the story, you know, basically is, is Yossi and two friends go into the Amazon jungle with a, with a guide um, it, you know, things occur, but basically it ends up with Yossi being alone and he's alone for 20 days by himself in the jungle, surviving with nothing. So Daniel had to replicate that physically, what that looks like to basically get to the point of starvation. Um, so what Daniel did was he had a trainer with him the whole time and they worked out a, a like a dietary plan that was safe, but took him to the edge of basically being incredibly skinny and incredibly looking malnourished, even though he wasn't. Um, so Dan had to basically do this entire physical weight loss regime so that when we got to those sequences and he takes his shirt off, he's basically just skin and bone. And it's fairly dramatic. When he first did it on set, everyone was just like going, oh, my God, are you okay? Can, can, I, can, I, can, I, get, can I get you a yeah. sandwich? Is this, yeah. Was he mentally okay? Um, he, he, was, he was, I mean, Daniel's incredibly disciplined and it was, a, you know, a very big commitment for him to do that for the movie and take on the role. Um, but he wanted to go all the way. He wanted to. He wanted to take. You know, took it very, very seriously. He didn't want to. You know, look like he just stepped out of a gym if he was. You know, stuck in the Amazon for for twenty days. It was that part of the film where he took that shirt off. Where there was a moment where I thought that's not real. Like it was so confronting. Yeah. Like just how much weight he had lost. But he yeah, looked pretty bad. Yeah. When we were shooting that scene, this is the scene by the tree with mm-hmm. the ants. When we we're shooting that scene, <laughs> Daniel. Uh, Daniel was bored joking around and uh, and he said, uh, hey, kids, if you love Harry Potter, you'll love Jungle because he looks like a, he, he's covered in mud. He's just covered. It looks like an animal. It was an animalistic kind of primal moment for him. But he was just well, sort of laughing about how he's this iconic figure that we'd all grown up with and then there he is, you know, it's this bad. horrible, horrible moment of like, yeah. yeah. Um, you shot the film in Colombia. You'd previously shot the Belco experiment there. Were you actually in the Amazon and how difficult was it to shoot under those conditions? Um, well, we, we actually, sh- so the film was shot half in Columbia and half in North Queensland. So we shot all the rivers, all the mountains, a lot of the towns, all that kind of stuff in Columbia. Um, and we, we worked out of Bogota. Um, and then the second half was shot out of, in Mount Tambourine, out of, uh, out of Queensland. A lot, a lot of the close-up jungle stuff was done there because it was just easier and was a little bit safer in some ways. Um, the... Uh, what, was, what was the original question? Uh, just the conditions. Oh well, I mean, look, the the jungle down there was was cool. 
except for the fact that um, when we first wrecked the place, there had been a drought there for five or six years. So we got there and the jungles were, it looked like the outback. It was like, where's the oh, jungle? No. And so we were panicking. Then we went to North Queensland looking for jungle up there and we got there and we thought, it's great, but it's not quite as big as we need. And then we went back on a, another scout to Columbia. And by that time, the rains had started and then it was torrential. So we'd be shooting in a river um, for all the rafting sequences and we'd come back the next day and they'd all be saying, oh, no, don't go back to the river. And it had riven, yeah. risen 20 feet overnight. Oh, so, God. And that, you know, if you think about 20 feet, it's like it's so much water. So, And there'd be villages that had been washed down from upstream and you'd see all kinds of you know, wildlife and things getting washed. It was quite dramatic shooting down there. And then we had to just wait till it went down again so we could get back on and shoot more rafting scenes with Daniel. Uh, uh, sorry, I'll go. Um, <laughs> you uh, wrote and directed one of my favourite movies of all time, which is Rogue. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, one I'm, of my personal favourites too. <laughs> is it really? Because I'm a big fan of crocodiles. Oh, yeah. Are you a big fan of crocodiles as well? I'm obsessed with crocodiles. <laughs> Great. I spent a lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they just high five anyone who's not in the studio. <laughs> uh, um, it's something about that that movie, like the, I guess, it, and in the, this movie Jungle, like obviously you haven't written this. So what's the difference between you know directing something that you've got the vision in your head of what it was going to be like from the start, whereas on something like this, it's you kind of drawing on someone else's vision of it. Um. Gosh, I don't know. It's 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 a different process. Um, I kind of, uh, you know, I wrote a, I wrote the first three movies I directed, and then, or maybe you know, I co-wrote a couple. But you know, there's, there's so many writers who I like, and who are so much better writers than I could ever be. So it's, there's something I'm really you know enjoying now working more with great writers because you know I like writing, but I find it so hard to do. I really am, you know. It's, a, it's almost impossible to me to get to sit down to write because I'm, it's, it's a, such a struggle for me. Um, so when I find writers that I like working with, I just in, just really enjoy the process of working with them. So I think, um, you know, you know, I don't know, writing's hard. I really, uh, you know, I guess what I'm saying is writing's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> I feel my hands easy. <laughs> if I can get someone else to do that pain, then then they, that's probably preferable. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask it. you about that as well because. Um, you've spent a lot of time with uh, Wolf Creek's Mick Taylor. There's the films, there's the TV series, but you've also written two novels yes. featuring the character. He's a horrific figure, but he's also a very Australian one. Right. What does Mick Taylor say about the Australian psyche and the Australian culture from which he emerges? I mean, I sort of think about him in terms of something like Wake in Fright, for instance. Right. Um, there's, a, I mean, there's a lot of you know, elements of Wolf Creek in Wake in Fright in terms of basically exploring, you know, the kind of shadow, nasty side of the Australian cultural identity. Um, at the moment, actually, it's interesting because right now we're doing the second season of the Wolf Creek TV show, which I've just come from the set of yesterday. Um, and we're always, we're talking about this at the moment because we're the first, you know, the the first TV season was talking about a revenge story. This is really going back into what Mick really is all about, which is... You know, he's kind of he's essentially represents the shadow part of the Australian psychology, which is basically all of the repressed, horrible things we pretend we're not. So racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, all the awful parts that you'd never want to admit exist. He is kind of those things personified. So if you think about, you know, Crocodile Dundee, which is all the things we would think we are, positive, um, outward looking, can do, all these, that's all the stuff we want to believe. Mix all the things we don't want to believe exists. I've never thought about those two characters like that. Yeah, so it's kind of like there's the light and the dark and Mick 
when you meet him, you think he's that thing, but then when the mask falls, he's the other. And that's the horror story of the whole thing. And so it is all about basically um, mining the kind of nasty, horrible things and the horror the horror aspects of the Australian psyche, which are all those nasty, horrible things that when they're unleashed are really nightmarish. The new film uh, is Jungle, stars Daniel Radcliffe. You can see it tonight for the opening of Melbourne International Film Festival. Throughout the festival, you need to jump on the website and find where it's showing there. And otherwise, that's your chance to, to catch it before it gets commercial distribution. We've been talking to its director, Greg McLean. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR.